All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28 is where we're gonna be. Listen, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you're with us. All the questions, the doubts, the skepticism, hey, it's, it's welcome here. So we may not have all the answers, but we wanna be committed to you and walking with you and trying to help you with those questions that you have. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, Acts 28 is the last chapter in the book of Acts. Uh, it's crazy how fast time flies, isn't it? I think the, the older I get, time seems to move quicker. And, and I'm not old by any means, but it feels like, like the years are just flying by. And it's hard to believe that almost 12 months ago, we started our series in the book of Acts, just going chapter by chapter through the whole book. And today, I get to bring this series to a close. So that's what we're going to be doing today. And it is crazy how fast time flies. My wife and I, one of the things that we've been trying to do lately, the last couple years, is build in intentional rhythms in our life. So that way, as time is moving quickly, we are building in intentional spaces to stop and slow down and really reflect on all that's happened. And there's some like natural ones that we do, like going into the new year is definitely a natural space to slow down and reflect on the year before that. Uh, birthdays and anniversaries, we love to do that, kind of reflect on, on what we thought the year would look like versus what it actually looks like. When we get away for anniversary trips, what we'll do is just is process where are we at in our marriage? Where are we right now? Where do we need to be next year? What's, what's good? What's bad? What's unhelpful? Um, so this is something that we've been trying to do. And lately what we've been doing is, is a daily rhythm with my two little girls. I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And we're trying to do this on a daily basis where we just reflect on the day and we grieve what was sad and we think back on what was beautiful and good and we really give thanks to God for all that, he, all that he did and repent of any sin that we needed to repent of. We call this highs and lows. This is what we do. We, we do highs and lows at dinner time. So we'll just go around the table and we say, all right, what, what's your high for the day? What, what was good today? What was incredible? What was exciting? And, and what's your low today? What was sad? What was depressing? What was painful? And we'll just share that. And it's, it's fascinating to hear answers from my five-year-old on this. Like they're actually really good answers some of the time. Sometimes she's like, yeah, this kid stole a toy and now I want to kill him. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I've got some discipleship work to do in my house for sure. Um, but my three-year-old, man, she has no idea at all what we're talking about. She, she loves to do highs and lows, but she thinks it's the same thing. So she's like, my high and low was, and then she usually says like some item on her, on her plate. My high and low was the carrot right here. You know, and you're like, oh, that's cute. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, so one of the reasons why we do this is because so often as humans, we're flying through life and we don't pause long enough to actually give thanks to God for all that he's actually done. We miss out on a lot of the beautiful stuff, a lot of the things that really are profound that God does. And so this is just a way for us to slow down and to, to acknowledge what God has actually accomplished. And what I wanna do as we bring this book to a close, I don't wanna just fly through this book and be like, all right, now it's done. I wanna take a little bit to pause with you and I wanna reflect on all that God has done, all the takeaways from this book. And really there, there are way too many takeaways, so I only have a couple that I wanna give you today. But this has been a profound journey through the book of Acts. We, we've gotten phone calls and emails and text messages. Like people have been, their lives have been changed through, through this book. Some people have just experienced a fresh desire for Jesus to move in our city. Some people are living on mission in ways that they never envisioned before. I mean, there's been some really beautiful things happen in this book, and we want to take a minute just to slow down and process and reflect. 
Now, before we do that, I need to catch you up to speed because those of you that were here last week and you're paying attention, you're going, whoa, 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 we're in chapter 28. Like we left off in Acts 19. Are you punting on the rest of the book? What's happening here? Well, here's what's happening. We're not punting on the rest of the book, but chapters 21 through 28 specifically read very similarly and as excitingly as a travel itinerary schedule. So it's actually great. Like it makes great reading. I I think you you should all go home and read chapters 21 through 28, but it's difficult preaching because it's like, and then Paul went here and then he went here and then he went here, and then he went here, and then he went there, and then he went there. And it's like 21 through 28. That's, that's what that is like. So here's what I want to do. I want to just recap a little bit. In chapters 19 and 20, what happened? Well, Paul's in the city of Ephesus. This is modern-day Turkey, and a revival hit the city. Just God grips the city in dramatic and powerful ways. Paul spends two years doing ministry, and then he sets his sight on Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. So he wants to go back to Jerusalem. And before he leaves, we read this in Acts 19.10. It says that by the time Paul left, all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now just wrap your head around that. There wasn't any person in the the entire region of Asia that hadn't heard the good news of the gospel. It didn't mean that everybody followed Jesus. It didn't mean that everybody was a Christian, but everybody, it was just common, like, oh yeah, the gospel, we know what that is. How profound and bizarre is that? This is just dramatic moves of God in the book of Acts. And then we get to chapter 21. And in chapter 21, Paul lands in the city of Jerusalem. While, while inside of Jerusalem, the Jews finally get a hold of Paul. They've been trying to kill him for, for a long time now. They finally grab a hold of him and they're beating him and they're physically assaulting him. They're trying to kill him. And before they get a chance to kill him, the Romans sweep in and they grab Paul and they arrest Paul. And this ensues a, a sequence of trials that Paul experiences. In fact, by the time we get to Acts 28, Paul has experienced five separate trials where because of him being a Christian and preaching the gospel, he's now standing before people. He's standing before governors and all these people in positions of authority, even the king of the Jews, and he's giving a defense for his life and for his ministry. After these five trials, Paul spends two years in prison And then after that, he's transferred as a prisoner to the city of Rome. Now, here's what's so crazy about that. To Paul and to the rest of the early church in the first century, Rome was the edge of the known world. Like they didn't know what was beyond Rome. They didn't know about North America or South America. They didn't know how far South Africa went. And so for Rome to be the sites, Paul's thinking like, man, I'm finally making it to Rome. This is the edge of the known world. World. He wanted to be there for some time, but he didn't envision that he'd be dragged there as a prisoner. And the story's crazy when he gets there. Like before he gets there, he's on a ship and the ship actually wrecks. And so he, he's, he's able to safely make it to shore with all the other prisoners. And they're building a fire to keep warm. And he goes and he grabs some logs and he throws them on the fire. And right as he's doing that, a poisonous snake comes out and bites him on the arm. Now, let me just pause here. Like if you were just shipwrecked and barely made it to shore safely as a prisoner in chains, and then you're throwing logs on the fire and you get bit by a poisonous snake, you're kind of having a bad day. And this is just like Paul's life is a bad day. Every single chapter is like, and this bad thing happened, and this bad thing happened. And, and so Paul's just, he, he barely gets to Rome alive. By the grace of God, he gets to Rome alive. But as soon as he gets there, they put him under house arrest. They put him under house arrest. And what that means is that he was 
able to stay inside of a home, but he was physically chained to a Roman soldier. So you can just imagine, in fact, while he's writing Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, he's physically most likely chained to a Roman soldier in his own home. And here's the snapshot of Paul I want to give you. This is in chapter 28, verse 17. I want to kind of let you, like, open up a window and watch Paul as he's living out the last remainder portions of his life. And just think about this with me. Verse 17. After three days of being in Rome, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Yes, the Caesar that you're thinking of, like that Caesar. I was compelled to to appeal to Caesar, though though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, just pause there for a minute. What what we just heard was that There were already believers in Rome. There was already the gospel that had hit in Rome and they had already heard enough about it to know that some people really loved it and there was a lot of people that really didn't. Like the gospel had exploded so far that though Paul just got there, there were already Christians that had scattered the gospel as far as the edge of the earth. Verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Now look at verse 30. Fast forward to verse 30. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense while under house arrest, and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, here's what's so crazy. Like after this, history tells us that Paul is released from house, house arrest. He's briefly released. We think he might've taken the gospel to Spain, although we don't know for sure. And then he's rearrested just a short time after that. He's brought back to Rome and history tells us that Paul actually gets a chance to stand before Caesar and give a defense. Can you imagine Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle standing before Caesar, and then right after he gives his defense of his life and ministry, he's dragged out of the city, and they behead Paul because of the gospel. Now, here's, here's what's like sticking out to me as we wrap up this book. There are so many takeaways that we could pull out and look at and talk about together, but I just want to give you three things today, and, and one of them is actually emerging out of the life and ministry and eventual death of the Apostle Paul, and here it is. Here's the first thing that we learned from the book of Acts. Acts is all about Jesus changing people. All about Jesus changing people. Do you remember who Paul was when we first met him? He was actually a man by the name of Saul. He got 
His name changed later on, but Saul, this man, he was, he was not a friend to Jesus. He was not someone that was interested in Jesus. He wasn't someone that, is, that was even pursuing more information about Jesus. Paul hated Jesus. And the very first picture that we get of this man, he is a terrorist to the church, and he's standing over the dead body of Stephen. He had helped murder one of the early church leaders in the early church, one of the best leaders that they had at the time. He was actually complicit in his execution. And the first glimpse of Paul we get is him standing over the body of Stephen. And here's what it says in Acts 8. The author of of this book, Luke, says this. He says, and Saul approved of his execution. That word approved means like there's this, this hearty affirmation of the execution of this innocent church leader. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. So listen to this. While they're lamenting over his death, Saul was ravaging the church And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the very first picture we get of Paul is not this friend to the ministry of Jesus. It's not this person that's kind of a skeptic but somewhat interested. He's an antagonist. He hates Jesus. He hates what the church is all about, and he's trying to put a stop to it. And then later on in Acts 9, we read this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way or Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul, when we meet him, he's, he's putting a stop to Christianity in his best efforts. And by the end of this book, when, when we get to the very end of the book, rather than him being a terrorist to the church that's persecuting Christians, Paul is now a Christian himself. And in a bizarre way, he's not trying to put a stop to the church. He's giving his life away to see the church built and established all over the known world. What happened to this guy? How does he go from terrorist to missionary. What took place? Well, here's the story. Some of you know this, some of you don't. The story is that while he was on, his, on the way to Damascus to, to kill more Christians and arrest more Christians, Jesus shows up to him and he falls off of his animal. He's blinded by the glory of Jesus. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, what I expect to read in the story, if you're just reading the story, what I expect to read next is like Jesus just destroys this guy because he was so terrible and he'd done so much wrongdoing against the church. He'd murdered one of the best leaders. You kind of expect Jesus to show up and smash this dude to pieces. And instead, what Jesus does is he says, Paul, rise up. I'm gonna change everything about you. And even though you hated me and even though you were against me, I am real, I am alive. And I'm now not only saving you, but calling you to do my work for the rest of your life. Paul is captured by the grace and goodness of Jesus. And listen, Paul is radically changed. He goes from terrorist to missionary, the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. And here's the point that I wanna make to you. Acts is literally filled with stories of Jesus changing people's lives. So yes, Paul's kind of conversion and the events that surround it are pretty unique, but the actual conversion experience that Paul experienced, that is not a unique thing. 
that men and women throughout all of the last 2,000 years have experienced similar things where they were running away from God, they weren't looking to God, they weren't interested, and Jesus, for whatever reason, because of his mercy and his love, he reaches down and he's changing people with his grace. You see, the story of, of Acts and really the whole story of the Bible is not a story of a ladder coming down from heaven called religion, that God says, all right, if you want to get to me, then here are the things that you need to do. You need to climb this ladder. You need to become a moral person. You need to turn over a new leaf and stop doing these things and start doing these things. You need to to become a really good person. Then I'm going to lavish my grace on you. Then I'm going to show up and I'll adopt you into my family. Then I will help you change. No, the story is not that. The story is that God actually comes down the ladder to us And when we were all running away from him, he's running after us. And he comes to his enemies. And rather than crushing us, which is what we deserve, Jesus goes to the cross and Jesus gets crushed in our place, bearing our sin and our guilt. And then he rises from the dead and the offer on the table to every person in this room and in Edmund and South and Shawnee, the the offer to every person is that if you will come to Jesus busted up, and sinful and broken, God will not only forgive you, but he will give you a totally new identity. He'll give you a completely new life. He'll change you. This is like stories after stories after stories that we could share of similar instances of life change. I think about Paul from Frontline Shawnee. Paul was an atheist, and he started, to, uh, started a job where he was working with a group of people that attended Frontline, and then he eventually moved into Frontline. It's like, oh, snap, Jesus is about to save that guy because now all of his roommates are Christians, and he's hearing the gospel, and he's starting to ask questions. Then he shows up to a community group, and then now he's asking questions to the community group, and he's wanting to know that, and they're really tough and difficult questions. And the next thing you know, he shows up to church. And for whatever reason, he's like drawn and he can't explain it and he keeps coming and he keeps coming. And then one day, Paul moves from being an atheist to responding with love and faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's like an intern with Frontline and his, his life is so different. Like five years ago, he wasn't a Christian and now he, he, he didn't even believe in God. And now he's saying, not only do I believe in God, but I actually love Jesus and I wanna follow Jesus for the rest of my life. I think about my buddy at Frontline South he got married really young and him and his wife got off to a really terrible rocky start. And before long in his marriage, my buddy fell in love with another woman that he wasn't married to. So he ends up leaving his wife and he steps into a relationship with this other woman that he fell in love with. And he's still married, dating this girl. And while dating this girl, that went on for about six months, she just one day stopped talking to him altogether. And his life just went into a deep, dark depression and he was completely out of church and he didn't know where to go. He didn't know what to do. And he was just, he, he was saying that he would he'd bawl his, his eyes out every night. He'd just bawl himself to sleep. He was so depressed and so sad and didn't want to go back to his wife, but didn't know what to do. And then one day he shows up to church and he wasn't even listening, wasn't even engaged in the sermon, but there was this passing comment made that that there's no sin that you could ever do to put yourself too far for the reach of God. And and, and that pastor that was preaching that day mentioned something about, you know, if you've left your wife or if you've left your husband or whatever, and for whatever reason, his heart in that moment, God just reached down and made him alive. And he started to repent and he started to confess his sin. And, And then he goes back to his wife and he apologizes and confesses and she takes him back and now he's like he's plugged into the church and he's serving on our worship team and he's doing all like his life looks different now and listen it wasn't always perfect and it still is far from perfect 
when he got back with his wife, he was still in love with this other woman. But he knew that Jesus wanted him to do this. And, and it took a few months for, for God to work this out. And now he told me last week, he said, man, I, my, my wife is my best friend and, and my heart's for her and her alone. Jesus has done that because I, I didn't have the power to do that. I think about my buddy, Justin Coffey. Many of you know Justin one of the pastors here, Justin, his life was spiraling out of control with drug addiction and, and, and he was about to lose his wife. He was about to lose his family and things were getting crazy. And for whatever reason, the grace of God, Jesus stepped in and saved him. And now he's a flipping pastor in our church. Like how crazy is this? When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just forgive us, but he brings change and he brings us not just out of sin, but into something bigger than ourselves. I think about myself. My dad was a pastor. I, I was born and raised in church. I'd, I'd been in church every single time the doors were open my whole life. And I was really, really good at pretending to be a good person and keep all the rules. I didn't really love Jesus. I just loved the approval of people. And so I kind of figured out how to play the game. And listen, I would have worn masks and played the game my whole life, but I had internal baggage and sin and brokenness and addiction. And for whatever reason, Jesus stepped in and by his mercy and by his love, he allowed me to stop playing the game of man-centered religion. He showed me on the cross that there was nothing I could add to what he's already done. It really was finished. And not only did he forgive me, but he gave me freedom to be honest about the brokenness and sin inside of my life. And Jesus changed me. I, I'm, I'm so, if you know me well, I'm still very jacked up. But there is a dramatic work that God has done inside of my heart. This is all over. We could go on and on and on, but here's my point. My point is not to say that Christianity is all about, well, I used to be bad and now I'm good. No, 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 no. This is all about, I used to be dead and now God has made me alive. I used to be uninterested and now Jesus is all I want. So let me just tell you this, if you're here and, and I don't know your story, maybe you're like me, man-centered religion is, is the game that you play. Listen, Jesus has done everything for you. There's nothing else you could add. You are trying to, you're trying to get the approval of people. How about having, by grace, the approval of the, the most important person in the universe, and it won't cost you a thing? Maybe you're here and you embezzled money and you carry shame around with you. Or maybe you're here and you had an affair or you've left your spouse. I don't know what your story is, but wherever you find yourself, addiction, brokenness, you feel like you're drowning, you have never done anything, anything that has put you beyond the reach of God's love and mercy. If God can save and change a man like Paul, a terrorist who was killing and persecuting Christianity, can't he also step in and not only forgive you, but radically change you? Hey, the offer on the table for those of you aren't, that aren't Christians today is not just come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. It's come to Jesus and you will be forgiven and you will be given a new identity and a new life and he'll give you the spirit and he'll start to change you from the inside out. Jesus changes people. That's what we see in the book of Acts. Here's the second thing that we see. Acts is not only about Jesus changing people. Acts is about Jesus advancing his mission. Some of you have wondered, like, where is Jesus right now? He died on the cross. He rose again. Did he slip away to some private island? Is he on a sandals island right now? You know, just chilling. Is he like just waiting for, you know, the world to get a certain place and then he's going to come back? No, where is Jesus? Well, here's what's so crazy. The book of Acts is the answer to that question because what we see happening is after Jesus died and rose again, he appears to a, a small band of 120 
people, 120 disciples, and he says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. You're gonna start here and you're gonna go all over the earth. And so rather than Jesus continuing to do his his life and ministry here on earth, Jesus ascends into heaven and he calls the church to continue his life and ministry on earth. So Jesus, where is Jesus? He's in heaven continuing to do his, his life and ministry, but this time he's doing it through people like you and he's doing it through people like me. This is bizarre. Acts is the story of the mission of God advancing in profound ways. How profound? Chapter one, 120 disciples that could fit in one room. Chapter 28, we are now outside of the city of Jerusalem. We are now in Rome. Rome is 2,548.2 miles away from Jerusalem. This is a big plane ride in a day and age where there were not planes and there weren't just 120 Christians. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands, most likely hundreds of thousands of Christians, people that had not seen the risen Jesus but were following him and were giving their life for him. The mission of God advances. And here's the point. Jesus is not on vacation. Jesus is continuing to do ministry and mission through the church. He's continuing to do ministry and mission. And what I love about the book of Acts is that there is more persecution and more opposition and more antagonism to Christianity than we've ever seen. And yet the church is thriving and growing and the mission of God is advancing in profound ways. Here's the Here's the thing that I think, regardless of where you are, uh, if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, or regardless of where you are politically, can we all agree that the world that we live in is pretty crazy right now? I think most people say, yeah, the world we're living in is a little bit crazy. In fact, some people are like, this can't be real. In fact, some people, uh, like from Harvard and Yale, have actually put together this theory. I was reading this really hilarious article written by um, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker. And in this article, he poses this question because he's looking at the world and he's going, man, this is like society is crazy right now. The world is nuts right now. And he poses this question. He says, are we living in a computer simulation gone haywire? And he's being serious and kind of the thesis here, and there are people from Oxford and Harvard and Yale that are putting together these these ideas that essentially what you and I know of as life is actually the matrix. And there's millions and millions of these things, right? True story, right? There are millions and millions of these, these like lives and it feels real to you and I, but it's just this computer simulated program that the real people out there have d- designed and created to know what, what different things would be like in, in life and how much we could stand and, and could we withhandle or could we handle these different things that occur in the world. And what he's saying is that's what's happening. This world isn't real. It's just a computer simulation, but someone has jacked with the controller, right? It's like the dad gave the controller to the seven-year-old boy and it's like getting crazy in here. And he points to a few things. He points to the recent Super Bowl. It's like, that should not have happened. Something went wrong in the controller. Um, He points to election night, right? Super liberal guys, he points to election night. And then he points to, this was, I thought, really funny, the Oscars gaffe with La La Land and Moonlight. And he's like, see, The world we live in is messed up. It's broken. It's shattered. Someone has jacked the controller, and now what we're experiencing is glitches in the system. So the world is pretty messed up, but can I give you the good news of this? 
that even as Christians, we feel it on a different level. It's not so much of a joke for us. Like, yeah, actually, it is really messed up. Sexually, things are getting crazy. With gender, things are getting crazy. With, with the way that we're kind of just kind of pursuing autonomous self-expression at all costs is crazy. The world is getting more and more bizarre. And can I tell you this, that the more and more Christianity gets pushed to the margins and the more bizarre that our world is, that is the perfect environment for the mission of God to advance in dramatic and profound ways. Because in the first century, Christianity made no sense at all. It was offensive to Jews. It was ridiculous to the Romans. Based on where you lived, you had different gods that you would worship. The idea of there being just one God and and for the Jew, the idea that that God actually became a man and died on a cross and was cursed is just insanity. So this is the worst message that could ever get off the ground in the first century. And yet thousands and thousands and thousands of people become Christians. Guys, the church thrives when we're shoved to the margins. The mission of God advances when the world gets more bizarre and even more chaotic. So if you're looking around and you're going, things are crazy right now, guess what? Maybe it's because Jesus wants us to actually advance the mission of God in profound ways. And we do that way better as the underdog than we do when we have a seat at the table. That's what the book of Acts shows us, that no amount of opposition or persecution or setback could ever stop this mission of God. So how does God advance his mission, right? Well, we know the the Sunday school answer is, well, Jesus does it. Jesus is the one that advances his mission. But actually, listen, Jesus calls you as a Christian and me as a Christian into a life of mission. And so now part of following Jesus is not just showing up on a Sunday, but it's actually living our life so that people that are far from God might know Jesus. And in Acts chapter one, he says, I want you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. They were thinking Rome. But can I tell you, Rome was not far enough. Like God was thinking of Oklahoma and he was thinking of different places in the world that had never been reached. And he's now calling us and you and I literally are still here on this planet for the mission of God. It advances through you and me. The church is his plan A to see this mission advance. So here's the challenge that I wanna propose to those of you who are followers of Jesus in this room. Can we do this again? You've read the book of Acts can we do this again? It took them about 30 years, roughly, to see this happen. Can we do it again? Some of you, you're 30 years old. You've got way more than 30 years left in you. Some of you are 60. You've got 20, at least 15, 20 years left in you. Some of you, you're 50. Like, most of us in this room, now we're getting, I better stop before I get ahead. Some of you are getting worried. Like, how much time do I have left? We'll talk about that later. My challenge to you is that there is time left to live for the mission of God and see it advance. Can we do it? They did it in 30 years. We can do this again. In fact, look at Acts 30. I want to show you this. The ending of the book. Keep that in mind. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. and He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, the end. Does anyone else feel like, wah, wah, that was a lame ending to a really incredible book. Some of you are like, man, if you, I mean, if you read from one, chapter one to 28, and you get to the end, you're like, I, I'm missing pages. There's gotta be more. It can't just end like that. It's like, and Paul was living in his house telling people about Jesus, the end. You're like, whoa, 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 what happens after this story? 
Well, here's the point. This book doesn't have an ending because this book has not yet ended. You and I are literally living this book right now. This is the next chapter of the book, and God is continuing to write more chapters. And I'm asking, can we do this again with the next 30 years of our life? I love the words of Arthur T. Pearson. Some of you are wondering, how do we do this? Well, listen, Arthur Pearson says, Church of Christ, the records of these acts of the Holy Ghost have never reached completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it waits for new chapters to be added. So fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed spirit in his holy seat of control. And that's the last thing I want you to see about this book. Acts is all about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. It's all about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. If you read through the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was dwelling in places like the burning bush with Moses or a tabernacle or a temple. When we get to the book of Acts, the Spirit of God moves from places into people. And now you and I have the same Holy Spirit that Paul had, that Peter had. Listen, you and I now have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had while he was living his earthly life in ministry. Some of you think, oh, Jesus was able to do all those cool things like raise the dead and heal the sick and resist sin and temptation because he was God. Jesus was God, but when he lived as a man on this earth, he didn't actually tap into his divinity. He lived out of his humanity as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means that everything that Jesus did, we now see Paul and Peter and other men, non-apostles doing in the book of Acts. And can I tell you, that has not stopped. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us this grand, profoundly big mission, but the ability to carry it out. In fact, he says this in Acts 1 verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, you have been given the Spirit of God, not just for sanctification, not just for the fruit of the Spirit, but for mission. And let me just say, say this, like when I say 30 years, can we do this again? Here's the crazy thing. We have every single thing that they had and they were able to pull it off. We can do this too. They did this by the power of the Spirit. You and I can do this by the same power of the Holy Spirit. And I would just say this, in fact, not only do we have everything that they had, but our position is way superior to what they were experiencing in the first century. We actually have more of, of, of an ability to pull this thing off to where we can see another movement, another missional movement like Acts happen in the next 30 years. Listen, we have the rest of the New Testament. They didn't have that. We have technology. They didn't have that. We've got social media. That's good and bad, but they didn't have that. We have the ability to broadcast the gospel in ways that they couldn't imagine. We have the ability to fly to other countries. We've got the ability to do things that they never would have dreamed to do. We can do this. We've got 2,000 years of church history to learn from. They didn't have that. We've got some of the best teaching and books and podcasts and blogs and seminaries in our day. They didn't have that. You realize we have more content and resources that you can access in a week's time than the Apostle Paul could have ever gotten in his entire life. Guys, not only do we have the same Holy Spirit, but our position is even more superior. We can do this by the grace of God. This is why, if you are a Christian, Jesus has saved you out of sin. It's because the mission of God is continuing to advance and he's given you the Spirit so that you would be his witnesses.
Jesus changes people. Jesus advances his mission. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Which of these three things have stopped? None of them. 30 years. Let's do this again. Now let me close with this. As soon as we start talking about that doubt and fear and kind of a rolling of the eyes starts to happen. Ha ha, really funny, 30 years. We can't do that. And all of a sudden the atmosphere in the room starts to change because we really don't believe that Jesus could do something this profound. And I'm reminded of a story that our good friend PJ Smythe told us to kind of help us with our atmosphere as a church. And I, I love this story. And, and here's what I found, like, like the temptation to all of us is just to kind of check out and pursue the American dream and just to go about our lives kind of creating wealth and safety and security and, and, and pleasure and enjoyment and forget all about the mission. And, and, and I want you to remember like God's called you into this and it's grand and it's big, but let's, let's know who has invited us into this. It's Jesus himself. And P.J. Smythe told us this story about General Montgomery addressing some, some really badly beaten soldiers that he took over their leadership and, and they were exhausted and worn out and they'd just been pummeled in World War II by Rommel from the Germans. So in 1942, the Allied forces were losing a lot of ground in North Africa to the Germans and Rommel was doing a very good job for the Germans to kind of dominate what was happening there in North Africa Winston Churchill became so fed up with this situation that he kind of fired the, the general that was there and he in, inserted Montgomery. Uh, friends of Montgomery would call him Monty. And Monty is just kind of this, he was like this beastly guy, like no, no fun, like we're just gonna do the, do the work. And here's what happens. He gives this profoundly good speech when he takes over. He's addressing his officer corps of about 500 men. And I want you to just paint the scene. They're out in the desert. He's standing on the, on the, on the steps of this caravan, addressing his officer corps. And here's what he says. He says, I believe that one of the first duties of a commander is to create what I call atmosphere. And in that atmosphere, his staff and troops will live and work and fight. I do not like the general atmosphere that I find here. It is an atmosphere of doubt, of looking back to select the next place which to withdraw to, of loss of confidence in our ability to defeat Rommel, of desperate defense measures and preparing positions in Cairo and the Delta. All that must cease. Let us have a new atmosphere. The defense of Egypt lies here at Alamein. Here we stand and fight. There will be no further withdrawal. I have ordered that all plans and instructions dealing with further withdrawal are to be burnt and at once. We will stand and fight here. And if we can't stay here alive, then let us stay here dead. Our mandate from the prime minister is to destroy the Axis forces in North Africa. I have seen it written on a half sheet of notepaper and it will be done. If anyone here thinks it can't be done, let him go at once. I don't want any doubters in this party. It can be done and it will be done beyond any possibility of doubt. Here's what I would say to you and to my own struggling heart, that you and I have been given a mandate from the prime minister of all prime ministers. He has given us a job to do. He has given us a mission to, to go into our cities and to love God and to love people and to push back darkness. And he actually, the risen king of the universe, wants to see a missional movement happen, not only in our state, but all across the globe. And he's inviting you and I to do this. This is what Jesus has called us to do. And he is capable of pulling it off. 
And here's the crazy thing I would say to you. Unlike what Monty said to his army, if there are doubters among us, please don't go. Please don't leave. Stay with us and doubt and be a skeptic and have questions. But this is what King Jesus has called us to do. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus, the offer on the table is not just forgiveness, life change. He will come and give you a new identity. And if you are a Christian, this is the story of the continuing advance of the mission of God.